weeks. So the last couple of weeks we've been in this middle section of the book of Revelation uh, looking at a series of visions that John sees in heavens. They're not enumerated, but some people um, point out that there are seven of these visions, all identified by either the phrase, I looked or I saw. Um, and today when we hit chapter 14, we hit a pivot in this series. Um, uh, way back in chapter 12, um, we the series started with that sort of broad view of Christ's appearance on earth and what cosmological impact uh, Christ coming to earth and assuming kingship in heaven had. Um, and we're introduced into the first of a series of, of three figures uh, in chapter 12, and that was the great dragon who accuses and deceives uh, people, and he's cast out of heaven and thrown to the earth. And in his great wrath, he seeks to destroy the church, for he knows that his time is short. And then he, in this attack upon the earth, he utilizes two beasts, um, or earthly kingdoms, we talked about these beasts representing, that direct people to the worship and service of this dragon. And that first beast we talked about mimicked Christ. It had characteristics, qualities like Christ. It, it's a beast that presents itself as slain, yet living. It exercises authority over every tribe, tongue, people and nation. It receives universal worship. But we see the true nature of that beast in its persecution of the church and the blasphemy from its lips. And that's what distinguishes, really characterizes the reign of that first beast. And then last week we turned to looking at the second beast um, that whose purpose supports the worship and rule of the first beast. Uh, if that first beast uh, mimicked Christ, the second beast mimics uh, the apostles or the messengers of Christ or maybe even the Holy Spirit. Um, it exercises the first beast authority and points people to worshiping that first beast. Uh, it's its messenger, even performing miracles and its deceptive witness to the first beast. So the, the first beast was characterized by that word blasphemy. The second beast was characterized by that word deception. And uh, the chapter ended with this um, presentation of those who worship the beast, whether by predilection or through deception, they receive the beast name and number upon them, a uh, number that we talked about last week as being perfect imperfection or complete uh, incompleteness. So now we come to 14, which is, again, a turning point. And we see, uh, we've focused on these, these, this dragon this, and these two beasts, this unholy trinity. And now we sort of flip and we see um, uh, this call to those not marked by the beast and the ultimate um, fate of those who are marked by this unholy trinity. And so today we'll see some about um, these, this army of God and the pronouncements of three angels. So I'm hoping we'll get through about verse 13 today. So um, uh, let's read. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, 
And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him the glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Uh, thus far, God's word, let's uh, go before him in prayer and ask he give us his Holy Spirit that we might be uh, hearers of it. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we thank you this day for uh, feeding us by your word. By giving us this uh, book of Revelation uh, shown to your servant John. Lord God, you gave us this book not to, uh, to give us a puzzle to solve or to tickle our fancies, but to help us to imagine the world as it is, to employ um, our minds to think about your kingdom and its coming that we would be faithful and endure. Lord God, we talked about last week the, the need for discernment. And we do ask that you would help us uh, to be wise hearers and wise seers, that we might be able to discern the things of God from those things that belong to the beast. 
Lord God, give us eyes this day that we might uh, see along with John and we might uh, learn and that we might be encouraged in our life of the gospel. That you would encourage us in this life, that we would keep faith in Christ, and that we would follow your commandments, even though it might lead to suffering, persecution, even death. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to be brought close to Christ, the one who has redeemed us the one who has marked us with perfection and completeness when we were incomplete. Help us have that faith that endures even to the end. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we talked a little bit about this 144,000 last week, largely in comparison to those marked um, with 666. We, we talked some about last week that these two, uh, chapter 13 ends with those having the mark of the beast, the 666 number of, of, of incompletion. And then how that's contrasted with these people in, in the first verse of chapter 14 who have the name of the Lamb and the Father's name written on their foreheads. This is actually the second time, if you recall way back, <laughs> that we've had um, this uh, a group of 144,000 people. First time, just for a recap, was back in chapter 7, where we had uh, 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel identified as, as this, um, uh, those bearing God's seal. And our first question might be, is this the same group of 144,000 as that first group? or is this a different group? But before we get to that question, I want us to think uh, specifically about the 144,000 that were shown in this chapter. So as we see them in chapter 14, what are some of the characteristics of these people who've been marked by God in this way? What are some of the things we're told about this group of 144,000? So they're bearing the name of, of the Lamb and the Father. So they have um, two names uh, marked upon them. Pat, what were you going to say? They were singing a song. Yeah, they're singing. And only they, and only they could sing the song. Um, and let's think about, what does it mean? And they're, they're singing a new song. What does it mean to sing a new song? You know, again, it's it's not just any song; it's a new song. And if you know we study our Old Testaments, that phrase should be familiar with us. If we listen to you too, that phrase should be familiar to us. Years ago, when Jerry and I were young, like one of the songs we would sing, and there was a line in it that said that we as Christians sing a song that the angels cannot sing. And I thought that was really strange. Well, the angels aren't redeemed. So I would guess that it's a song of redemption. Okay, so it's a song of redemption, um, and you know, as no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So there we see that connection between the ability to sing this song and redemption. Good. What else does it mean to sing a new song? Where else in the scripture do we see that? Moses and Miriam 
Yeah, the new song in the Old Testament is often associated with victory. Um, uh, we see that first in the Exodus, but uh, especially in the book of Psalms. Um, it's a, a repeated theme in the psalmody that, you know, you're singing a song longing to, for the day when you'll sing the new song, um, the song of God's ultimate uh, victory. So here we have um, uh, these folks singing the new song. It's a, this phrase has also shown up one other time in, uh, in Revelation, and it's back in chapter 5. So if you want to flip back a couple of chapters. And it's in verse 9. And we're actually given, when they're described singing a new song in chapter 5, we see some of the content of that song. So Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. So as Mark said earlier, this is kind of, this is a song of, of redemption, a song of God by the Lamb's blood ransoming people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Um, okay, so we've got uh, these people, um, they're marked with the Father's and Son's name, uh, they're singing a new song. What else are we told about this 144,000 in chapter 14? Yes, I don't think it. I know it. <laughs> um, yeah, this would be, would be one of those passages that would um, they would use to indicate uh, celibacy as a, uh, a pure or higher calling than a life of marriage. That marriage is sort of this, and, and devotion to God, marriage is sort of a compromised state. They've actually not backed off that a little. They de-emphasize that post-Vatican II. Um, not so much by... Um, um, uh, denigrating celibacy, but by having a much stronger kind of um, statement about marital, about, about the state of, of marriage. Um, you know, it's a sacrament as well. Um, as, 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 so they sort of raised marriage. But for the most of the history of the Roman Catholic Church, they've held um, virginal celibacy as a higher spiritual state than marriage. Um, Again, that shifted a little. But, um, but Ronnie, so what do we, how do we understand that these are 144,000 who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins? How do we understand that? So, I mean, as we think through it, um, what, what, what's our response to sort of hearing that? 
and I can tell you my response in a little bit, but I want to sort of hear what you say. Doug. I think partly it's a contrast to Babylon and to the immorality that's being shown by, quote, the other side. Yeah, and that, that's, uh, we see that in verse 8, that, that contrast just in this chapter. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So, you know, again, if it's this contrast, we have this contrast between those who are, are imbibing this, this um, sexual immorality. They're drinking the, the wine of, of the, and those who are refusing to defile themselves in this way. So it's, it's contrasting uh, those marked by the lamb and the father with those who have the mark of the beast. And I think just to follow up with what Ronnie said, I think it's sexual immorality is a metaphor for uh, impurity. So we have purity versus impurity. This is, I don't think this is just an issue of sex. Okay, good. And that's something, I mean, as we think about it, you know, uh, how do we understand it? Do we understand this as sort of literal virgins? Or do we understand it as uh, the way scriptures uh, um, sometimes use virginity in other ways? Um, there are other passages to sort of think about the, uh, our call as Christians to be a virgin bride. Um, uh, this shows up later in Revelation in chapter 19 and 21, but I just want to read um, a passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians because I think it really sort of fits with the context of what we're thinking about, um, uh, the sort of whose, whose kingdom are, are you serving. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So there Paul is you know, very similar to here. We have this long description of those who follow the beast and then this, this um, description of those not giving into this different message, following this different Christ, following this, this other false apostle are those who aren't marked by the beast are described as, as being um, uh, virgins, being sexually pure. What else do we think of virginity? I mean, and I, I'll have to say my first leap, or my first um, thought when I read that was immediately to go to the, um, is, is to go to the sort of broader understanding of virginity. Again, the way we see it uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New, our relationship to God being presented in terms of, of sexual fidelity. You know, you think especially of you know, someone like Hosea, you know, having to take a harlot as a wife to, as this sort of prophetic, uh, symbolic action of God's relationship with uh, Israel that has prostituted itself to other gods. But I also want us to think of it in terms of, um, you know, when I first read that, I'm like, wow, that, that 
that would be a hard, that's a hard calling. You know, to sort of just think of it, before we get to the figurative, to think of, you know, it, it would be hard to, especially for me being married, uh, it would be hard to have that kind of, of virginity, to have that kind of lack of defilement, especially in the midst of our culture that's so permeated by um, sexual promiscuity. Um, so to think of, of one of you know the the path that that is being set forward for these hundred and forty four thousand here isn't an easy one. So you know it's a high calling. Um, it's it's a calling of sacrifice, giving something up, um, and that carries forward if we understand it um, as as Doug said early. If we understand the broader uh, figurative understanding of virginity as describing um, our relationship to God, but to understand it as it is, um, it's not an easy thing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's, it's struggling in the faith in this way. Yeah, Mark. I think another thing that kind of lends credence to that broader view is the end of that verse 4, the beginning of 5, where it says, these have been redeemed from mankind. So in other words, they're different than the general um, mankind, and then and in their mouth, no lie was found for their blameless. Yeah, so several things point out there. So one, there's no lie found in their mouth. And, and, you know, again, to sort of put this right up against what we read in 13, remember what that second beast uh, is characterized by deceitfulness. Um, and, you know, and here we have the contrast. These are people with no lie. Um, these are people being found blameless. These are people redeemed from mankind. Um, and, uh, and I want to sort of think of this in terms of the number. Um, these are people marked by something that's been done to them. They've been redeemed by God. Um, and I, I was thinking about uh, these two numbers. So last week we had 666, which y'all did a great job sort of explaining as perfect imperfection. You know, three, the number three is a perfect number. The number six is an imperfect number. So to have three sixes is a way of indicating perfect incompletion, which is the condition of, of um, fallen humanity. 144,000 is a perfect, perfect number. Um, you know, it's, you know, 12 is a perfect number. Uh, um, so you've got two 12s and thousands a perfect number. So it's a perfect, perfect, perfect number. You know, just as with 666 is a perfectly imperfect number. This is a perfect, perfect number. Um, and, you know, this is a number um, to sort of think about, uh, you know, this is a number collected by God. God is, is complex. It's sort of this picture of you have this, uh, those marked by the beast being marked by incompletion. And God has this perfect number of those um, who, who've been redeemed. Um, you know, again, it's you know, that incompletion is 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 uh, it's the number of the beast because it's the number of man, and this is the number of God. It's the number assigned by God. Um, it's not a uh, it's not a um, it's not something these people possess within themselves. It's something that's been given to them. Um, 
maybe. Uh, just sort of thinking about just the juxtaposition of these two numbers. They're used in different ways, so it sort of makes a little, by analogy, a little difficult. But it's just the fact that they're squished together like this really had me thinking a lot. Um, anything else we want to say about this 144,000? So, so far they're singing a new song. They have the, the name of the son and father. They're described as the redeemed from mankind. Uh, there's no lie in their mouth. They're found to be blameless. Uh, they're virgins and, and not defiled. Um, anything else we're talking about? Them? Yeah. So, when I first time, I I'm so glad you brought out first fruits. So let's think about first. What are first fruits in general? And then maybe that'll help us understand. Um, so as we think of first fruits, as we see it used in the Old Testament, um, especially, but also in the New, what does first fruits usually indicate? Offering, tithe, the best. Okay, so it's the best. It's uh, an offering to God. Anything else we want to add to? So it's usually the first of, of the produce being sacrificed, devoted, offered to God. Anything else we want to say about first fruits? Yeah, cheer. Well, it's sacrificial because you're, it was mentioned to you give your best, but you're waiting for it. giving up something um, in the presumption that you know that but at that moment um, you know at that moment you're not you know from an earthly terms you don't know what's gonna happen you know I've got lots of friends in Mississippi who are farmers and I've never seen anybody um, who pays more attention to the weather than they do um, and to sort of you know to think of the faith in, in, involved in that action of sacrifice the initial produce, the initial produce you've been longing and waiting for before the rest of it has come in. So um, to think about this in terms of these people, um, so here we have this presentation of these people as um, first fruits, emphasizing the idea of, of of Christians sort of following in those sacrificial steps of, of Christ, being willing to give themselves uh, in an offering in this sense. Um, the New Testament, uh, um, to sort of get to the, the second half uh, of, of Matt's question, the New Testament uses first fruits with respect to new converts who were the first of many more to come. So it shows up in the Pauline Apostles, you know, talking about specific people sometimes. You were the first fruits when I visited you. Um, to, to sort of, uh, so it has that, it can have both of those senses. Um, it can have that Old Testament sense of uh, the initial sacrifice set apart, dedicated to God, but set apart and dedicated to God with the hope that more to come. And so, so if we, and maybe that helps us think about, is this 140 44,000 uh, a literal number or these like you know is, is it a sort of set apart group of Christian martyrs um, who are, 
are the first of a much broader harvest? Is it or is it describing the totality of Christians redeemed by God? Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Assumes all the so even if you want to read it narrowly, what we're saying about the characteristics of the, you know of broad applies both ways. So and that's the main thing, uh, and I'm glad you you brought this out that you know this is how God uh, describes the elect um, throughout uh, the scriptures. Um, and let me just uh, I came across this passage from Jeremiah yesterday. Um, so this is Jeremiah 31, 1 through 8. Sort of, uh, you know, in the midst of Jeremiah's prophecy on judgment of Israel, he sort of has this moment of where he lays out their restoration and their ultimate hope. Um, and so this is one of those passages, and it really sort of connects this ultimate um, uh, destiny of mankind with the virginity of Israel. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. So this emphasis on God's keeping of the commandment. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines. You shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when the watchman will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. So there, you know, gives a picture very similar to what we're seeing here in John of these people in the presence of the Lamb who are, have been marked, who have been redeemed by the Lamb, who are singing that new song before the Lamb, who are described as virgin, um, even though it's clear in that Jeremiah passage it's a restored people. So, But using that idea of virginity to mark those whom God has uh, redeemed. Um, so... Uh, if we, if we want to take it as a literal number, then I would sort of take it more, so these are the first fruits, uh, this, that idea um, of more to come. But I, I, I like this other idea um, I, of thinking, again, of it. It's a perfect, perfect, perfect number um, that describes the totality of God's saints who've been redeemed from mankind. Um, and one final thing before we sort of shift on. Notice that there are also people distinguished by following the Lamb wherever He goes. 
And again, the characteristic of these 144,000 is their sacrifice, um, their first fruits, their um, keeping themselves pure and undefiled, um, they're not lying, they're blameless, they're following Christ's steps. And so often in the New Testament, following Christ, uh, you know, is following in Christ's sufferings. Um, uh, Jerry, a couple weeks ago, preached on um, uh, this passage from Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we're being given a picture of those who are following Christ rather than uh, adulterating themselves with this, uh, the whore of Babylon, with the beast. They are marked by Christ. They're not marked by the beast. Okay, yeah, Andy. I'm just wondering, given the description of verse 4, it almost seems like what you see frequently in Acts when it talks about the number of converts, it's actually the number of men. Not, yeah. Not the entirety. And it seems like that's what this is described. They've not defiled themselves with women. Um, yeah, that's specifically um, setting apart these as men. Yeah, Victor. There's a, um, let me see if I wrote it down. Um, there's a passage in Israel that sort of talks about um, them in this terms. Oh, Jeremiah 2 3. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Um, so there is this, this, uh, or this idea of uh, this could be referring to Jews. And that's how that first 144,000 that we saw in the book of Revelation. Um, it was specifically sort of, you know, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, you know. So they, so I think that is, um, uh, you know, as thinking about what this might mean, I think there's a strong case for that as well. Um, that this is the first fruits, the first fruits are Israel, and, and then we see the many nations. And again, to think of the structure of chapter 7, uh, it starts with Israel in the first half, um, and then the second half of chapter 7 of Revelation talks about people from every tribe, tongue, language. Um, so, you know, there is this pattern in Scripture of it, it, it came to Israel and then through Israel to the world, and that's the picture 
picture, I mean, again, we think of uh, Israel's the chosen nation in the Old Testament, but they're never chosen for their own sakes. They're chosen to be a witness to the nations. They are the, and I think that's what Jeremiah is saying. God has set them apart for the first fruits for his harvest from the entire earth. Um, and then Jeremiah, right after that great sort of description of his first fruits, goes into, you know, all the horrible things they've done. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it could be um, uh, that, and to sort of think of it in that terms. Um, um, I guess I didn't go there first, but just because I don't see the indications of this sort of specifying Israel as we do in other places. But So I wanted to start and sort of get the characteristics of the 144,000 which are described here, which again are characteristics we should see of the church as large, and then maybe use those other passages to, could this be speaking of Israel, specifically Israel as the first fruits of God's uh, worldwide harvest. Anything else on 144,000? All right, let's talk about these uh, three angels. Um, we might not get through all of them, but um, so this first angel comes with an internal gospel to proclaim. Uh, when you hear the words eternal gospel, um, is this the message of this angel, what you think of? What distinguishes the eternal gospel announced by this angel? What's this angel proclaiming? Let's we'll start there and then we'll think about that. Uh, okay, so fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So it's this call to fear God, give God glory, um, worship him, uh, and particularly in light of his coming judgment. Um, so we might add that as... Uh, is that the way we usually kind of conceive of the gospel? I mean, the emphasis seems to be on the judgment, um, to be honest. <laughs> is that how we think of, is this the guy that stands outside the subway stop, you know, with the judgments at hand? We usually think we're the angel that we saw in Luke, you know, and Again, what I wanted to... It's just not telling all the message in Luke. Now it's the rest of the... Even it's, it's not a matter of telling all, uh, telling all the message. It's sort of thinking about the one message has different implications between those who hear and those who don't hear. Um, that same gospel that brings life also brings death. It's not that it's a different message, but if for those who do not hear that message, it's death to them. Um, whereas it's still the same gospel, it's the same gospel, but it's the gospel that brings life uh, for those whom God redeems is the, the message that brings death for those, um, and particularly as we see here, those who've been marked by the beast. And that original message, peace on earth towards men, isn't towards all men. So that's the problem. We've taken that and said, oh, he's ruled by peace and no more war. That's not what it means. It means peace for the redeemed of God. He's no longer angry. 
Yeah, that act of mercy also brings judgment. Uh, peace has a cost. Um, peace, and you sort of think of, of places, um, I mean, again, you sort of think of ways that um, we have a lot to learn from other places of the world. I, mean, I think there's so much going on in Africa about reconciliation and people who've been, you know, literally killing each other and, you know, going through that process of reconciliation. And sometimes that process involves bringing people to justice. Um, but there, it's there, you know, there's a way you can sort of sweep it under the rug and, you know, let's just move on and forget about it. But, you know, uh, that act of, of, of bringing peace also involves bringing judgment. Doug, you had your hand. Yeah, I, I think, too, the word fear is we have to keep in mind the context of that. When the angel was speaking to the shepherds, the angel was saying, fear not. That is, don't be afraid of me being here that's shocking you so much. Here it's saying, fear God. And when we think of the fear of God, we're often confused because we, we look at the word fear that I should be afraid of, hide from, run from. But when we say fear of God, we're saying we need to have a, an awe, a respect, a devotion to, to him. Not run away from him, but actually run to him, but in awe. God is not just my my buddy and my friend and all these kind of easy, casual 20th century church things, but we need to actually be reverent and in awe. And when we fear God in this context here in Revelation, there we better fear God in this whole totality of the context. It's not simply a matter of, you know, now don't be afraid. It's a lot deeper than that. Yeah, and to sort of think about, um, so the second part of my question that I didn't ask yet, um, but uh, the second part of the question I sort of had here is this, because there's some people who read this as, um, uh, you know, sort of read this kind of fear God, give him glory, as that, uh, as we saw earlier in the book, that kind of unwilling, they're forced to do it. You know, that idea, everybody's going to bow the knee to Christ, whether they want to or not. So do we understand this angel's call as being a genuine call to, to fear God in the right way, to have this reverential fear? Or is this um, that kind of compulsory, you will fear God whether you want to or not? Or both. Or both. Um, yeah, you, you know that's where I'm going. But... <laughs> genuine call for, for these hearers, um, these people from every nation, tribe, language, and people to fear God and escape this coming judgment? Or is it, um, you know, the, the kind of, well, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen to you? Uh, I'd like to uh, offer the answer that is yes to both, and it's as a precedent Yeah, and to think a 
especially um, you know, that uh, when we went through Matthew in our Bible study, it really struck me, uh, you know, that the first words we have Jesus proclaiming are the same words that John had been proclaiming: <laughs> "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." And John was saying that, and the very first thing we have Jesus saying to the crowds is that very same thing. So, um, to, and again, to go back to, you know, you knew I was going to like the both and answer. Um, I, I'm always with the whatever the D, all of the above. Um, uh, but to think about, again, it's the words of life come, are going forward, but if these people don't um, hear, if they bow the knee to the beast and worship the beast instead, it's words of death. You know, fear God or you're going to fear God. <laughs> you know, fear God reverentially or fear God uh, because you're about to see God's wrath unpoured upon you. And we've seen um, in the book of Revelation so far, we've seen both, si or both senses of the word fear. Remember back... Um, with the six of the seals and you've got people, you know, fleeing for the hills, you know, trying to cover themselves up because they're, they're fearful. They're fleeing the coming wrath of God. Um, here we have, it's, it's words of life going forward, but if they don't hear, if they don't um, give God glory and worship him, if they choose instead to worship the beast, then they're still going to fear God. They're still going to give God uh, his, his honor, um, but it's going to be uh, unwillingly rather than willingly. You, you kind of see that so much in this whole thing about trying to deny the existence of God because that, I don't have anything to fear because he's not there. Ultimately, yeah, this message is going to go out of those who suddenly realize, oops, cover their mouths. Um, and I, I want to also sort of, I've been thinking about this a lot, because last week I said I didn't want to talk about Harold Camping. Um, this week I do, because he really made me mad this week. Um, because he's basically said we should stop proclaiming the gospel, because it's too late. You know, that's what happened last Saturday. The, the number in heaven was completed, so if you weren't in by last Saturday at 6 o'clock, you're out. Um, and, and to me, that is, you know, of all the kind of um, horrific things about this, this kind of, of, of message, this is the one I find most dangerous. Because, uh, you know, what have we seen John throughout this book? Emphasizing the church's need to witness in a world that despises it. That is the job of Christians. And that's the job we saw at the beginning part of this. This sort of follow Christ wherever Christ takes you. Witness to Christ wherever you go, even to the point of death. We saw earlier chapters with the death of Christ's witnesses um, at the hands of this triumphant world who's celebrating over the corpse of this witness. Um, it's, you know, but here, you know, we see 
the gospel, you know, the gospel's going forward. That's the church's job. I, I don't know what the church's job's for if we're not, you know, if we've now entered a time that we're not supposed to witness anymore. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, the, the job of the church is to do what this angel's doing, to take the gospel, to take the eternal gospel, proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And so that's what, you know, and the whole sort of predicting a specific day, you know, hundreds of people have done that, so, you know, I can sort of ignore that. But to sort of start saying the church is to no longer be the church, that's where we start seeing maybe the beast <laughs> really creeping in here and sort of deceiving people to get the church to compromise from what the church is supposed to do, which is to witness even to the point of suffering and death. Yeah. So, I, uh, I mean, to, to the point, I think that you're saying that the point of preaching that gospel would be that some would um, heed the call and, and by their own will and volition do what you're um, talking about. Because, you know, even though it's all the above, my sense is this is he's trying to encourage people to do this willingly. Yeah. All of these are. Um, more of what I would consider, as opposed to every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, that's something that no matter what, everyone will do. Yes. Over here, I see this, everything that he's talking here, fear God, give him glory and worship, are all parts of the volition, as opposed to, I'm going to push you down on your knees, you're going to raise your hand, and you're going to confess. <laughs> Plus, if you look at the other two angels that talk about it, they talk about though if anyone worships the beast in his image, and uh, he talks again worshiping the beast in the image, verse nine, verse eleven. There's a contrast between those who willingly will worship God because there's a judgment coming versus the they're willfully worshiping the beast later. So. Yeah, it is a real gospel call, and I don't like the the, the tack that people take that oh, this is just sort of a um, denunciate kind of a call that's a denunciation. Well, this is not going to be you because you're not going to do it. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a real gospel call, and as we see the next couple um, angels, the emphasis is on encouragement to the church to continue in this work of of endurance uh, to not compromise and to bow the knee to the beast to it, it, you know that the word that comes at the end of the chapter to endure because again if we remember back to last week there are consequences for not having the mark of the beast you can't buy or sell you're shut out from the marketplace you know you're set apart for uh, to be identified and persecuted and so this call is for it's you know keep presenting God's eternal gospel it endure in that faith endure in that witness no matter what happens to you yeah Pat. I think when you talk about the gospel message I think it's kind of two pronged because first is you know God loves you and he's saved you and forgiven your sins and done this sacrifice and now you're in the family of God but then there's that other side too. If you don't do this, 
you are condemned. You, you are going to hell. And I think here it, it is, when Ronnie said this is the gospel, I'm thinking this is saying fear God or else. And the thing is, I think in today's world, we don't do that second part. I remember um, I was witnessing to a guy in high school once, and his one thing was, I'm not going to believe this if my parents, who are really good people and I love them, if you say they're going to hell, I'm not going to believe this. But that really is part of the gospel, is the good news and wonderful things for the elect, and it is bad news for all the other people. Yeah, we're being saved from something. Um, and again, uh, to sort of end with this, um, with the sort of juxtaposition of numbers, um, the number of man in, in, in and of themselves is incompletion. You know, we, we are not perfect. Our only hope for perfection is through the, the redemption of the blood of the Lamb. So to, to, to think of the consequences of that, you know, not responding to that message is to remain with the mark of the beast, you know, is to, to is to not have your only opportunity for completion, um, perfection, for redemption, um, and it's uh, we don't, yeah, uh, we don't emphasize the judgment aspects of it, and part of it is our culture doesn't one doesn't believe the judgment, but doesn't believe they have a need, and I think that's where they don't see themselves as incomplete. They don't see themselves as imperfect. They don't want a savior because they don't see themselves in needing to be saved from anything. And again, that's part of the gospel is sort of describing to people the position they're in apart from Christ and the position they'll remain in apart from Christ, um, which is, uh, you know, this enduring wrath that we'll see uh, next week. Yeah, Mark. Whenever I pray for specific non-Christians, friends, and family of mine, I think the passage that talks about the Holy Spirit in this job, and I might not have these in order, but it's to convict men of judgment, of righteousness, and deferred. But it's not what I would normally pray for non-believers, but that's exactly what, what they need. They need to be convinced of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are the three. Yeah, and it's the, again, it's the, uh, um, you know, again, sort of think of the contrast that, you know, this is a church that's called to be set apart from, you know, from the world, apart from the kingdom of the beast. It's identified, it's marked by different characteristics than we saw the beast kingdom marked and identified for. And that's going to lead to clashes, but there's never going to, uh, we're not doing our job if we're not repeatedly bringing that message um, to uh, to those in the world. All right, well, we've hit our time, so let me close the prayer. Almighty God, help us as your community uh, here in Concord, Massachusetts, endure in our faith, endure in our witness to uh, keep uh, uh, following your commandments, not because it raises us in uh, your estimation and it raises our, us uh, before you, that you would esteem us more, but 
because that's witness. Uh, how is the world going to know how to live if we don't model it for them? Um, as, as Martin Luther used to say, uh, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Uh, help us to be bearers of your good news in word and in deed. Help us um, in the midst of a world that uh, that seeks to beguile us um, in so many ways, to compromise our principles in terms of of how we deal with money, or how we deal with sexuality, or how we um, uh, deal with. Uh, um, uh, all of your law and how we deal with human life. Help us to endure in presenting a message different from that of the world and a message that the world hates. Um, so often when we present the gospel, we're met with hostility. And the reason I think we're met with hostility is because deep down people know it's true. And that we are saying there is, we're pointing out their problem. And we know it's their problem because it's our problem too, apart from the gospel. And that we come as people um, not perfected and completed in ourselves, but people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that is why we fear you with that reverential fear. That's why we give you all the praise and glory. And that's why in this coming hour we worship you, our God, our King, our Savior. Help us now to worship with all our heart and our mind, our body, our soul, all our strength. Help us to worship the living God who redeems, uh, who gives us life. And we pray it in the name of our great Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.